Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Story time. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. 
I'm not sure when I realized that my life was far from normal. I know what you are thinking. There is no normal. Sure. But in the good old US of America, it's not exactly typical to spend your days traveling with your parents and six to eight siblings in a very old, very small RV, stopping and sleeping at different campgrounds. When we knew we'd be staying in one place for a few extra days, my sister and I would share a tent. This was preferable to the nights we'd sleep while dad drove all night, or when we'd have to sleep in a Walmart parking lot. We slept where we could find space outside of the master suite. My older brother Sam got so fed up with the lack of privacy and inability to sleep with his legs completely extended that he once tried to set up a hammock in the tiny hallway between the kitchen area and the bathroom. He used the shower curtain. It went exactly as you can imagine. Fabric ripping, parts of the shower bending and breaking, him falling, and then the beating he took from dad for destroying dad's property and the family home. He wore the bruises for a month. The next day, our mother decided that the free-for-all regarding sleeping arrangements was no longer allowed. She led us through a family meeting and we were all assigned places to sleep based on gender and birth order, at least until we can find a bigger RV, because apparently, we are getting a new brother or sister in approximately 4 months. I didn't write this to talk about the specifics of RV living, although it was a huge part of my life. I want to talk about why we traveled. As I said before, I'm not entirely sure when I realized that we were different. Mom and Dad worked very hard to keep us from interacting with other kids who would tell us about homes, vacations, and schools. Or perhaps they kept us from those things so that we wouldn't share their secrets. And they had secrets. See, while I didn't have access to a library, no library card without a fixed address, ID, or birth certificate, I did have access to books. We had boxes of old, dusty tomes. Stories about legends and witches and things that creep in the dark. My sister Ruth also had a habit of stealing popular fiction when we would shop in towns throughout the US. It was wrong, but returning carts for people at Aldi rarely gave us more than a few dollars, and more times than not, we'd end up giving that money to mom for food. No one seemed too interested in where our books came from or what they were about, but through the power of reading, we could escape. It also helped us realize that other people didn't spend their days driving or training to fight imported monsters, like the American Leprechaun, a nasty creature who lives in tunnels under parks. The American Leprechaun steals money from park goers, and if their mark doesn't have gold, they kill them with a bottle to the head. As you can imagine, very few people in the US have gold on them for the creature to steal. Occasionally you will hear about someone waking up in a park, covered in bruises and missing some teeth. It could have been a bar fight, or it could be that they had gold fillings. The American Leprechaun are nasty, rude, and hard to kill, but I'd rather fight the American Leprechaun than the creatures in the woods. The first time I fought one of our Leprechauns, I was 9. Ruth was 8. We were staying in a campground in upstate New York, near Niagara Falls. Dad took Sam hunting, while Mom took the twins and the baby to town. Ruth and I were instructed to stay close to the RV and not talk to strangers. So naturally we headed off to the pool and playground. After a few jumps in the pool and general misbehavior, some adult told us to leave and not come back until we found an adult. So we wandered off to the playground. At the corner of the playground, under a large willow tree, we saw a hole. I, being the elder daughter, looked at my younger sister and told her to stay away. She refused 
Of course. We debated on running back home to ask for help from our parents, but eventually decided that the adults were busy, there was a reason they told us about this legend, and obviously we were the only people suited to this project. Step 1. We raced back to the RV to gather supplies. In the locked cabinet that our parents thought we didn't know about, we found pyrite, a large hammer with a four-leaf clover on the handle, a potato sack, and a small gold coin. I also took a bottle of Jameson from my dad's stash under his bed. Our plan was to lure the lep out of his tunnel with the gold coin, distract him with the fake gold and liquor, hope he gets drunk, hit him on the head with the hammer, bag him, and toss his body in the river. That's kind of what happened. We walked up to the hole where I laid down a trail of fake gold. Ruth carried the bottle of booze in the bag, while I held the gold and hammer. We loudly faked having a picnic. I'm sure it was super obvious, but leps are greedy, not smart. After five minutes or so, we heard a rustling from the tree. And then he was there. In front of us. Solid. Smiling. His teeth were pointy and rotting. His head was bulbous and sad and rather like a large potato. He did not wear anything green or jaunty, like the illustrations we'd see from time to time. Rather he was nude. His skin was brown, with a bit of a greenish tint to it. His eyes were protruding, menacing, and black. The creature was half our height. I spoke to him. I said, as bravely as I could muster, please leave this park. I don't want to kill you. The leprechaun took a step back. You can see me? Is that why you left me this cuss fake cuss? What are you? I smell gold. Give it to me and I'll let you live. Human. At that point, the leprechaun laughed and skipped back to his hole, shouting something unintelligible. Ruth looked at me. Her dark, curly hair was coming out of the braids I had done for her this morning. Do you think he might just leave us alone? That was pretty scary. I shook my head at her slowly. She nodded and picked up a stick she had been using as a walking stick for the two-kilometer walk from our temporary home to the park area. At that, the creature returned, with a second creature. He introduced it as his wife. This one was clearly female. She was also nude, very dirty, and gave off an odor that can only be described as wet dog. Her hair was longer than her mate's but she was just as ugly. But I thought there were no females in your species? How do you think we make more leprechauns? I looked at him blankly, and then offered him the bottle of Jameson. He said he would love to have a drink with us, however, he had some terms. First was that we had to drink as well. Second was that we needed to give him the gold. That was it. Ruth, being much less cautious, agreed for me. I could have killed her myself at that moment. She knew. We all knew not to make deals with the others, as we called the inhuman creatures that we were both looking for and running from. I fished out some cups from my backpack, and poured everyone what looked like the amount my dad would pour into his glass at night. The leprechaun looked at me and grinned. His black pointy teeth creeped me out and I tried to force myself to smile back. May you find the bees but not the honey they said, while raising their glass. I also raised my glass, as did my sister. The whiskey burned going down my throat and both Ruth and I threw up. My mom always told us that women can't drink hard alcohol, and I guess that's true. That's when they made their move. The male had the gold coin out of my pocket before I even realized where I was. The not male was yelling at Ruth to give up her gold. I don't have any. One gold for one life. I tried to bargain it down, saying we are children. 
I offered them the rest of the bottle. I asked if I could go get more gold. They denied my request, and said that I must die as well, as no human had ever looked upon their faces. And since I didn't offer up the gold immediately, they had to take it, and that complicated things. But mostly, I think, they just liked killing people. Ruth was screaming for me, I was struggling to swing my hammer at them, and I was filled with adrenaline, rage, and panic. Mostly panic, really. Finally, I made contact with the male, who flew across the sunny, empty playground. I moved over to save my sister, she was fighting as best as she could with a stick she had picked up earlier. The woman was swinging her arms, and she had somehow produced a large glass bottle from who knows where. We could see every crevice, every sag, every dangly bit on both of the creatures. Ruth was holding her own. Still, I had an opportunity. I turned the hammer around and hit the woman in the head with the back side of the hammer. You know, the pointy side. You probably call it the claw. But I was nine and to me and Ruthie, it will always be the killing side. Or killy side if we are honest. We aren't always mature with our language. The creature shuddered and disappeared. There was no time to breathe, though, the male was on his way back. He was hissing, spitting, angry, and now just a two-foot ball of rage coming at me. I knew I had one shot, so I swung the hammer. I missed. Not only did I miss, but the hammer slipped from my grip and I flung it across the yard. Like a child. He was on me and he was biting my shoulder and my face was in the dirt. I could feel his nasty saliva as he rose up, drooling on me. It's a shame, you are so pretty. I used every bit of energy to roll over and shove him off of me. I kicked. I missed again. But I have a sister and she came through and we are alive. I still have a scar on the back of my neck from him. I wish I'd asked his name, though that would have given him an opportunity to take mine, to this day. I see it and it reminds me of the bond I have with my sister, as well as a reminder to think through how the enemy could respond. We didn't plan for every contingency. That was my fault. I am the oldest female child. I am responsible for everyone younger than me. Including Ruth, though she is probably a better fighter. Don't ever tell her I said that. The male's body did not disappear when we killed him. We put him in the bag and brought him home to show our parents. They did not tell us then why only the female turned to dust. That night, mom and dad built a huge fire and we burned his body. The twins roasted marshmallows and Sam roasted a turkey he had shot earlier. We listened to our parents tell us again about the old ways, and to be vigilant. After the younger kids had gone to bed, mom told Sam to go take a walk around the campground to help his digestion. And that's when the parents came at me and Ruthie. They needed to know exactly who said what, what we did, and why. But first dad said well, I guess you are in it now. As he poured each of us a glass of wine. Mom protested, but he insisted it would help us sleep better. You must be careful. This is not the life we wanted for you. However, it seems you have chosen it. Tell us exactly what the monster said to you. Do not be embarrassed or paraphrase. These creatures are known to be tricksters and the spare could come back for you. Did you promise them anything? No, Ruth said, with confidence. Both of our parents told us that we were extremely lucky to be alive. I related the tale, once again. We saw the leprechaun hole, thought we should handle it before one of the little kids from a neighboring camp got hurt. I made a plan. We executed it. 
I told them how scared I was and how stupid it was for me to not realize there could be more than one. I apologized for stealing. Tomorrow, we will go find his gold. Get a good night's sleep, because it is going to be work. In hindsight, maybe I should have told them about the toast. Part 2. Sometimes I lay in my bedroll at night, and think about how stupid we were to toast to what was clearly a curse. The American leprechaun cursed us and we lifted our glasses. I was nine, but I should have known better. I know better than to dwell, but that simple curse may you find the bees but not the honey was clearly a threat. But at the time, we just didn't know. That wasn't our fault. Right? The morning after we burned the leprechaun was unpleasant. We went to bed late. The wine DID helped us fall asleep almost immediately in our tents. That night, I dreamed. I dreamed of animals fighting over food and killing each other. Of rabid rabbits who ate ducks. Of a bird that morphed into a giant black towering creature, who read me the second amendment while dripping black goo all over a white carpet. As the creature reached toward me with its large gaping mouth, I woke up. I had a headache. And my entire body hurt. Yet, dad was yelling at us to get a move on. So I climbed out of our cheap, collapsing Walmart tent, and raced to the campground bathroom with my backpack. I love staying at campgrounds. Some of them have showers and flush toilets. I used the facilities, brushed my teeth, showered, and put on some clean clothes. I really only had three outfits at that time, two pairs of pants, one pair of PJs, three t-shirts, one sweater, seven pairs of underwear. I returned my dirty clothes to my mother so she could wash them when we found a place that did that. I often was inappropriately dressed. Fortunately, Ruth and I could share clothes which saved mom some money. When I got back to the campsite, dad was waiting with a shotgun, two shovels, and breakfast on the table. We ate our pastries and leftover turkey, and followed him to the ATV, which we rode to the park. On the way, we said our morning prayers, and he ran us through our daily character training. I despised character training time. Normally, my mom did this part of my training, when dad took over it was so much worse. Character training consisted of asking us questions about what kind of person we wanted to be, what we thought was right and wrong in various scenarios, and lecturing us to be better without really telling us how to be better. Because I am a girl, the answer they wanted was to be a mother and hard-working wife. But my family is also a traveling survivalist family, so we should want to be strong. We should be honest, kind, and smart. That was about it for the what do you want to be? Then there was discussing what we didn't want to be. Don't forget about any of the gods, don't forget to pray, don't harm the people who pay us, don't be too silly, don't drink alcohol, don't use birth control. I realized at a very young age, like six or so, that a lot of it contradicted itself. It was also very boring and didn't make much sense, weren't we born who we are? I couldn't train myself to like canned spinach no matter how hard I tried, how could I train myself to want to give birth? Why would I want to give birth when I knew what was out there? And babies were boring and loud and smelly. Then they grew into my siblings and while I did my duties, sometimes I was just tired of the twins constantly needing things and baby Alexander crying all the time. Ruth was different. She never complained about giving the babies a bottle and she cherished her role as mama's special helper. She had a real gift for getting them to be quiet. She procured picture books and read to them, played with them in the RV, and never seemed to mind changing a diaper or holding a bottle. Me? 
I wanted to read books, learn about the creatures, learn why they hunted us. Part of me wanted to be out there with Sam and Dad, running around the woods. The other part of me wanted to be nowhere near any woods. I had no idea who I wanted to be, since my options appeared to be so limited. The only thing I knew was that my parents' idea that I would settle into my own RV with a husband and raise kids while my husband hunted with my father sounded like a recipe for misery. That morning, when I was nine, was a bit of a turning point. When we pulled up to the park, and dad showed me how the tree was slowly dying from the leprechaun's tampering, I was sad. I was sad for the tree. I was sad for the creature we killed. Mostly, I was sad for myself. I didn't seem to be particularly suited for the person that my dad obviously wanted me to be, a strong woman who never wavered in her devotion to our lifestyle. A woman who relished wiping butts and cleaning spit off of things. Cooking with random assortments of food foraged from the woods, pinching pennies to buy clothing. A person who wanted to bring more babies into this world. He handed us shovels and told us to start digging at the hole. We obliged. Once it was large enough for me to enter, he handed me a flashlight and told me to jump in. Let me reiterate, my father wanted me to blindly jump into a dark hole. Of course I did what he requested, but Ruth basically pushed me in. I fell. And landed awkwardly on my shins or knees. At the bottom of the hole, I could see a tunnel. American leprechauns love to tunnel. They also love to combine their life force with the parks they squat in. So when you remove a leprechaun, sometimes trees die. Dad says the trees are dead as soon as they move in, the magic just keeps them looking nice. I crawled into the tunnel. After a few feet, it opened up into a large underground room, lit with magic candles that were about to go out. There was a table, set for two. Crouched over, I scooted through the room, and back into a dirty tunnel on the other side. Through that tunnel, I found another magical underground room, with a bed, and a dresser. For what? I did not know, as leprechauns didn't wear clothes. Perhaps they saw a picture in a Sears catalog and thought that was what bedrooms looked like. There were three doors attached to this room. The first led to a small room with just a crib. That made me sad. I did not look inside the crib. The second went to what smelled like a toilet room without a toilet. The third was another tunnel. Crawling through, I suspected I was heading down, further into the earth. My heart raced and my hands started to shake a bit. The tunnel was getting smaller, and smelled of earth and wood, and magic. I wasn't sure I could go any farther, as it grew smaller and smaller and I was afraid it would collapse behind me and I would be trapped under the ground forever, destined to be alone, eating earthworms, until I just turned into dirt and everyone forgot about me. I followed this, using my two-way radio to communicate where I was. It twisted back and forth and up and down. The darkness was something else. I began to struggle to go forward or back. Each hand forward was going into something unknown. Hard dirt, mostly, but I also felt worms and sticky liquid, spiders, and other critters scurry around me. I could hear the silence of the earth, I could hear bugs and rustling of old leaves. Finally, there was some light. A black metal bucket with a lid shined. Underground, with no light source. This had to be at the pot of gold where the monsters tossed their loot, but it looked like it hadn't been used in a really long time. I knew that if I turned around, which I physically couldn't, anyway, and left the pot there, I'd never find my way back to it. 
The magic that keeps these lairs from collapsing has anti-theft protection built in. I also knew that there was no way for me to carry it while I crawled around underground. I radioed my father and had him and Ruth dig down to me. I sat there, curled around the bucket for what felt like hours. Only to have it disappear when the sun hit it. There was no gold to be had, we had found the bees but there was not any honey. There never was any honey. My entire body ached, I felt ill, and it was all for nothing. My dad tried to hide his disappointment, but I could tell that it was somehow my fault. I should have put my body over the pot or brought a bag with me. We've never been able to get any money from these park dwellers, but we still try when we see them. I don't know why. I guess the thrill of the chase? The hope of fortune? We could buy a house and settle down. Or a bigger RV, with more beds and seatbelts for everyone. The silent ride back to camp felt longer than the ride to the park. Twilight was starting, I guess I'd been down there for hours, while they dug up the tunnel system trying to find me. Mom had completely packed up the RV and the second we'd hitched up the ATV, we were on the road again. We rarely left any campsite at night. Only when something went wrong, or if one of dad's friends called for reinforcements on something actively hunting them. Dad didn't like driving through the night, it drew attention to us. Mom tried to tell me that everything was going to be alright, that if the leprechaun lady came back for me, she'd take care of it. Meanwhile, we were off to help a family who lived near a state forest, in a town that I couldn't find on Google Maps. The woman who called us said that she had brought in three different plumbers, yet her basement kept flooding. Several expensive fixes later, multiple sump pumps, and never-ending headaches, she googled something along the line of I think my house is haunted, it keeps flooding make it stop I am running out of money and found the website that Sam had built, she then called our hotline. This isn't a website that's easy to find, Sam had put a spell on it so it would only show to those that needed it. He'd picked up some basic helpful spells from a warlock we met in Canton, Ohio. Nice guy. Hated cats. I imagine the conversation to be one where my mother, with her calm demeanor, reassured the woman that she was not crazy, we were not crazy, we wouldn't waste her money, and we'd even come check it out for free. I envied how easily my mom was able to get people to trust her. My few experiences talking to other children rarely went well. Usually they ended with them calling me a liar, or them calling me a homeschooled freak. I was discouraged from interacting with kids who didn't have families like ours, and as you can guess, there weren't very many other families who knew about the secrets. While dad drove as though we were fleeing from something, we were, mom, Sam, and I did research. I learned about the area, the closest town was called Randolph and it was settled by the Dutch. That explains the flooding, mom said, explaining to us about the lowlands. Most of the others or the monsters came with early American settlers and through the years have changed. Some, like the leprechaun, have become more animalistic. The various fae, fairies, and hidden folk were often unchanged, but very brutal. I wasn't allowed to learn about fae until I was 16. Woods witches are more lonely than cruel, but they do defend themselves violently. They do not live in houses or carry around dolls. Someday I'll tell you about the Kraken, the vampires, the Baba Yaga. She could have angered something from the state park, as well, said Sam. We just can't rule out the beaver myths, maybe there's something we haven't seen before. If it's not in the books, it doesn't exist, Dad yelled back.
Mom teased him a bit about being close-minded but went back to looking through books. I glanced over at the directions and tried to find my way on Google Maps. The directions led me to the end of a road in a forest. The satellite images did not show any type of structure or home. I wondered what would greet us when we arrived. I had moved to southeast Washington for work after college. The Blue Mountains were very close by, and being a hunter I was very interested in learning the land for hunting season. I went on several solo scouting trips into various areas, always picking locations that would put me the farthest from any public road or access point. I find in hunting that most people are too lazy to get much off the roads, so less competition in the remote areas. Being outdoors has never been anything new to me. I grew up on a farm and ranch in Montana, and have spent most of my youth working outside and dealing with animals. Not only would I have to tend to the various livestock, but I was raised into hunting and above all enjoy calling animals. I was 10 when I fooled my first coyote that I was a dying jackrabbit, and since then have mimicked everything from rodents to bull elk well enough to fool predators and big game routinely. I know with the explosion of bow hunting popularity that animal calls have become more commonplace, but I don't think you can appreciate it to the same extent a country boy can that learned how to echo back the calls of cattle, horses, chickens, etc., before old enough to attend school. I'm not bragging here, I'm just laying the groundwork that I have a very trained ear for animal calls. So I set out one afternoon to run up the blues to scout for game. I got a late start, but no real worries as most the spotting of animal activity occurs at first and last light. I was able to only hike a couple miles from the road before I needed to find a spot to camp and watch for game. I climbed up a ridge and found a small somewhat level spot to set camp. I had a pretty good view of the surrounding area, but ended up only seeing a couple white tails before dark. I kept a dry camp, no fire, and just turned in early for the night to get a good start in the morning. I was awoken at about 1am to probably the worst headache I have ever had. It would be just a surge of pain then taper off, then come back. I was very careful about my hydration on the pack-in, so I knew it wasn't dehydration, about my only real concern on the trip. So I'm lying in my bivy, with this on again off again pulse of pain trying my best to diagnose the cause when my ears finally tuned to this strange sound coming from the mountainside above me. My thoughts move from the headache to this animal call. It's not matching any of the calls I know. It's not matching any of the general patterns I know. It's too loud and repetitive, it's unique, it's very, very strange. I know instantly that this is a large mammalian call. You can say how do I know that? And all I can say is I have a lifetime experience like I stated above. It's definitely a mammal, it's big, with a deep, hollow vocal chamber, and although this is evident, I tell myself it is likely some w a bird to ease my mind. After all Washington must have different birds than Montana. So now I'm stuck that if I focus on the sound I can't believe my bullshit that it is a bird, and as soon as I try to not think about the sound, the surging pain of my headache is unbearable. Close to 2am I make a judgment call and pull camp and head back to the truck, with this call repeating the whole time before this decision. The way I hiked to my camp was pretty direct but rough, however there was a gated road just above my camp that circled back to the main road where my truck was parked. Distance would be longer to follow the road, but easier to travel in the night. Also it led me directly towards this call before it would start to circle back to the truck. 
So with my 1911 in hand I walked that road out. The interesting part is the sound stayed above me as I walked out, always directly up the mountainside and after climbing up to the road only maybe 200 to 300 yards distant. The animal clearly shadowed my departure, following along up the mountain a ways. As soon as I dropped down out of the mountains my headache completely cleared. I have since decided this was likely attributed to altitude sickness, since I was also having a hard time regulating my breathing. The real fun came when I got home and had to start searching bird sounds for Washington, at this point about 3 to 4 am. My search was not producing anything close to what I had heard. That small nagging voice finally had me Google Bigfoot call, and damn if I didn't find an audio file of what I had just heard almost instantly. That call was so unique that on my drive home I grabbed a mouth read and was able to duplicate it quite quickly. There is no doubt in my mind about what I heard. Of course I have doubt of any sound on the internet labeled Bigfoot whoops because who can say what call a mythological creature really makes, and how could you ever be sure? I can say that I never heard it again even on return trips to that area. I even walked through the area it originated from, and it was a thick, nasty north slope face full of trees and vegetation. I had moved back to Georgia from southern Oregon, don't worry I returned to Oregon, for a while, and the city life was a culture shock after the peace and tranquility of the remote state of Jefferson. I decided I needed to get out in the woods for some sanity, so on Valentine's Day I went camping up outside of Helen and the Appalachian foothills by myself. I drive as far as I could up the dirt road, 7 miles maybe? Until the rest of the road was closed off for winter. Nobody on the drive anywhere. Set up camp by the creek right there. Had a fire going, still daylight, and a truck pulled up out of nowhere on the road. Two guys, I'm a female in my 30s. Hate to stereotype but they looked the Appalachian hillbilly part. They also had a bottle of liquor in their hand they were drinking from. Asked why the road was closed. Peered around my campsite from inside their truck, I'm sure noticing just one chair by the fire. I said we were only staying for one night, and looked at the tent maybe to insinuate my man was in the tent. They left. They were creepy. It got dark and I got it in my tent and I kept thinking about those guys and I could not shake it. No cell reception. I thought maybe I could sleep in my truck bed that had a camper on top in case they came by that I would check the tent. But why would I put myself through that? So defeated feeling because I just wanted some nature magic to soothe my soul, I packed up my camp, put the embers out, and got on the road. No way would I have gotten sleep. I pulled out of the site and around the next corner, hours after I had seen them, there they were. In their truck. Waiting in the dark. They pulled out in front of my truck after starting theirs quickly, and started driving down the long windy 7 miles. I had no reception. Was super scared. Thinking of what I could if they stopped. Ran their truck off the cliff? What if they had a gun? I made it to the main road and they took off, and I stayed in a hotel and told the hotel clerk to call the sheriff and this was the their license plate. I know I probably narrowly escaped s assault or death or both. Happy a Valentine's Day. Good thing I never celebrated. I'm back in Oregon and very happy by the way. Went on a water camping trip with my family for my younger brother's graduation. We had a houseboat and were anchoring to the shore at night in pretty remote forested areas of a massive lake system. 
We had just set up for the evening and I was swimming along the shore when I saw a guy standing in the forested area just past the boat just watching and jerking off. I was afraid to alert him that I'd seen him so I just ducked under the water and swam back to the boat as fast as I could and had to convince my family to unanchor and move the boat we just finished setting up. It was so creepy and gross and I couldn't get the image out of my mind. Every dark tree line by the shore from then on gave me the heebie-jeebies after that. I used to work at a Boy Scout summer camp. Every week I had to take a big group of campers to a secluded spot for their wilderness survival badge where they had to build a shelter out of sticks, leaves, etc. and sleep in it overnight. The spot was only about half mile from the main camp, but we took them a circuitous route that made it seem really secluded. Anyways, on this one night all the campers had made their shelters, we had cooked dinner, and were all just sitting around the campfire. It was getting late, maybe 11, so I sent all the campers to their shelters for the night and started cleaning up the fire. That's when we heard in the distance what sounded like church bells. They were pretty faint, but myself and my fellow staffers could definitely hear them. They went on for about 30 minutes, ringing ever 30 seconds, or so. We were all a little creeped out, as there were no churches or towns within 20 miles of us. After the bells stopped, though, the singing stopped. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Started. It was too faint to hear the words, but it sounded like church choir music, but a lot of people, and a lot more enthusiastic. Also, it was almost midnight at this point. The singing went on for well over an hour, sometimes quieting down until we almost couldn't hear it, sometimes getting so loud we thought it was getting closer. All of the campers were super creeped out, but I lied to them, telling them there was a church service going on in camp, and that there was nothing to be scared of. Eventually, at almost 1 a.m., the singing stopped. I found out a few days later that there had been a large KKK rally only a few miles away that night, and that's what we had heard. Hiking up a 14k through the woods. My dad grabbed my hand to help me up an embankment and my hand was apparently ice cold. We stopped the hike and my vitals were checked. They couldn't find a pulse on me all the way up until my armpit on both of my arms. The guide's sat phone wasn't picking up a signal either, may have been an equipment issue. We made the decision to keep hiking on to base camp about an hour away and treat me for hypothermia there as the only outward symptoms I was showing was having no pulse in my extremities. 
My pack was taken from me and brief checkups were performed every 15 minutes. After a couple of hours at base camp being treated some warmth returned to my arms. We decided that the next morning we would huff it off the mountain just to be safe. The next morning I woke up with icy arms again. We, my dad, one of our guides, one of the more experienced hikers, and myself, left most our gear with the rest of the group to carry down at their leisure and unencumbered we made it off that 14k in a little under 3 hours alternatively jogging and sprinting. After getting to the hospital and being at lower elevation blood flow returned to my arms and hands. And that is probably the most dramatic diagnosis of Raynaud's syndrome. Raynaud's is the unusually thicker muscle membrane around the capillaries, arteries, and veins. Normally at low temperatures and high altitudes your body will constrict those muscles in order to force more blood to the body's core. When my body constricted those thicker than usual muscles it completely cut off the blood flow instead of just slowing and restricting the blood flow. Bodies are weird and awesome. It was around Thanksgiving 2019. I live in rural Catawba County, North Carolina. I got home from work to find my brother and nephew sitting in their truck in the backyard next door. I started walking over to ask what they were up to when a rotten odor nearly gagged me. It smelled like the raw flesh and the wet hair of a mangy animal. I then heard a low tone growling or moaning coming from the tree line. I immediately joined them in the truck. We listened for maybe an hour, at times it was so loud that we could almost feel the vibrations from it. We could tell where the thing was, but could not see far enough into the brush to get a visual. It was dusk when this started, now dark, it paced the wooded area behind our houses several times before finally fading away. None of us had an explanation nor volunteered to take to the woods with a flashlight. The next night, the same thing happened again. My brother was prepared with a spotlight, but when we tried to shine it, all went silent for the night. We were sure it was over for good but we were wrong. I got home early on the third day and was met by a farmer who lives on the opposite side of the highway from us. He told me that he was cutting weeds from his back pasture when a large piece of wood was thrown at him. He wanted me to go over and pick up the equipment he had left behind. He was very upset. He visited for a while, and we told him about our experience. Luckily for all of our egos, our smelly friend made one final show. We heard a growl just like the last two evenings. Our farmer friend did something we hadn't thought of. He yelled at it. The vocalization immediately changed from grunting into loud high-pitched yodeling screams. As if it were trying to answer. The thing obviously started running away, but continued whooping. This was the first time we heard actual footsteps. I am sure was bipedal, as it sounded like a human running and pushing branches away as it went. My brother had a group of five girlfriends of his daughter staying with him at the time. He joked that all five plus his wife must have been on their time of the month. He was more comfortable taking his chances with Bigfoot than going in the house with the women. A neighbor, also a witness, theorized that it was the girl's condition that attracted Bigfoot in the first place. I thought he made sense but didn't bring it up. While we couldn't claim to be eyewitnesses, I was soon approached by a guy who occasionally worked for me. His brother and three co-workers from a local construction company were headed home from work. When nearing my house, the driver blurted out, look at that monkey. He stopped the truck as the creature crossed the road, about a 50-yard sprint. After a moment of silence, he remembered saying, there ain't no monkeys here. 
He described it as six feet tall, dark in color, mangy, and lanky. None of them knew of my recent experience, so this was amazing for me to hear. Yet another community member came forth after that. A farmer lady who lives just to my north confessed that she had become afraid to go out to her garden. She felt she was being watched or stalked while out there. The same spring, a Boy Scout troop took their annual canoe trip on the river that flows through the area. They were scared by loud vocalizations along the way and consequently never went back. The following spring, I heard the groaning sounds again. This time not as loud and coming from the opposite direction. I dismissed them as a possible cow in distress, I called the farmer who owned the land adjacent to me and told him what I heard. He laughed at me and said he had sold all his livestock months earlier. My brother lives between me and the area from which to noise was. Hoping to blame his dogs, I asked him, what the hell is wrong with your dogs? He replied that the dogs were cowering under the front deck and would not come out. As of January 2024, the activity continues. A woman by the name of Tammy moved herself and her three children into a small farmhouse on the Tule River near Porterville. Soon after moving in Tammy started feeling like something was watching them and had an uneasy feeling every time she walked by the old barn. For some reason, most of the animals on the farm seemed to avoid the rickety old building and soon she noticed that the number of her ducks and chickens had started to dwindle, but couldn't figure out why. She was soon going to have an idea why. One night Tammy and her son were coming back from grocery shopping when, as she parked the car and got out, she noticed movement to her right. Thinking nothing of it she picked up a grocery bag and noticed it again, this time accompanied by what she described as a very freaky, very evil-sounding chuckle. Looking in the direction of the noise Tammy noticed about 50 yards from her a small humanoid-looking figure. Or as she described it, a gnome. The figure was about 2 to 3 feet in height and wore black baggy pants and a gold-colored shirt. The face was partially covered by a long salt and pepper beard and on top of the head was a long, red-pointed hat. The nose was large and bulbous and the eyes were rather deep-set. As the figure grinned at them, Tammy noticed that the grin was almost from ear to ear and the teeth looked to be an ugly brown color and appeared to be either pointed or jagged. Horrified, Tammy dropped the groceries, grabbed her son, and ran off towards the house with the cackling little man right on her heels. Tammy was able to get inside the house and was telling her two daughters what she saw when she saw movement outside the kitchen window. Upon investigating she saw the top of the figure's red pointed hat moving back and forth underneath the window. Finally, after what must have seemed like an eternity, the figure disappeared and Tammy was able to get the groceries from the car. This was the only time she actually saw the figure, but until she moved out she would always hear creepy chuckling coming from the old barn, as if it was taunting her or something. You would think that this would be an isolated occurrence, but it seems the gnome wasn't satisfied with just terrorizing Tammy and her family. In March 2010, a family moved into the same house on the Thule River. According to the wife, Charlie, it was perfect for what their family needed. Her husband took a particular liking to a pond on the property and decorated it with fairy, gnome, and toadstool yard ornaments and stocked it with Japanese koi fish. Not surprisingly, Charlie and her family also had an eerie feeling about the old barn on the property and tried to stay away from it as much as possible. One night, at around 3 a.m., Charlie and her husband were woken by what can only be described as a raspy, 
gurgling singing. Charlie and her husband looked out their bedroom window and what they saw defied what they considered their reality. Standing by the pond and holding one of the garden gnomes was a creature that came out of a Grimm's fairy tale, as Charlie described it. The creature was two to three feet tall, wearing maroon pants, a baggy yellow shirt with a brown vest over it, and a dark waistcoat. It had a large gray beard and was wearing a reddish-brown pointed hat. Charlie went on to say the most horrible part of the creature was its eyes and teeth. When it grinned its teeth appeared to be jagged and pointed and the eyes were small and beady and had a dark mean look to them. Apparently, the creature saw the couple looking at it and reached into the pond, grabbed a koi, dropped it into its mouth, and swallowed it. Furious, Charlie's husband pushed open the window and yelled at the creature to leave the yard or he'd call the police. The gnome grinned and laughed as he gave them the finger and disappeared. The police were called, being notified that an intruder was on the property, but when they got there an hour later the only evidence that was found was small footprints, about the size of a child's, around the pond. There were other times the gnome would visit the pond. Night after night it would be seen holding a yard ornament and eating a fish. The family eventually woke up, moved the ornaments, and put the fish into a tank inside the house. Apparently, this didn't go over well with the gnome. Upon the usual time of its appearance of 3 a.m., when the gnome saw that the yard ornaments and fish had been removed it went into a crazed frenzy and began yelling and screaming in some language that nobody could understand. But they understood it was pissed. It began to run around the house screaming in whatever language was native to it. The family felt safe until Charlie realized the dog door in the kitchen was unlocked and feared the creature would try to enter the house through that. She was able to lock it and then ran upstairs to close the rest of the windows. The last they heard of the creature was a very loud screeching, cackling sound that was heard underneath one of the living room windows. Charlie's husband went to investigate and saw the top of the creature's head underneath the window. I'm sure that many of you remember the mining accident that occurred in Copiapo, Chile in 2010. The incident brought worldwide attention to the entire region as the 33 miners miraculously survived what has been called a cave-in at the San Jose Copper Gold Mine in the Atacama Desert. The men somehow survived for a record 69 days. When they emerged safe and mostly sound, rumors began to spread from their friends, families, co-workers, eyewitnesses to the rescue, and others. The rumors centered on the miners, how they survived, and what they had experienced during the ordeal. The United States government became involved not long after the accident. A U.S. drilling company was brought in to take the lead in drilling efforts, although this role has been somewhat minimized after the rescue. Upon rescue, most of the 33 miners were immediately quarantined and debriefed by black-suited U.S. agents of an unknown agency. Only three men were exempt from this initial debriefing because of extreme dental problems and required immediate dental surgery under general anesthesia. The official account states that the other miners were in general good health except for scratch, gouge, puncture, and slash wounds resulting from the cave-in and attempts to dig out. U.S. defense contractors, heavily armed, discreetly guarded a mini-compound occupied by U.S. interests inside the tent city that sprang up around the mining site. Immediately after lost 33 inches, the name given to the miners translating as the 33 inches, a team of NASA scientists entered the tunnel system, escorted by armed defense contractors and what appeared to be a special forces team, eyewitnesses reported. 
a perimeter was then secured around the entrance as a fence was erected, preventing further visual observation. So why was NASA involved? Here is the supposed official response. NASA was conducting soil tests of the most arid desert in the world, the Atacama Desert, which also happens to harbor an extensive array of large cavern systems perfect for simulated Mars research. NASA has stated that the arid conditions and cave formations in the Atacama Desert are good matches for the terrain on Mars and has dispatched a team of scientists there to explore the region's caverns. It has also been reported that this team of scientists has security provided by defense contractors and special operations operatives. This team of NASA scientists may be the very team cited entering the San Jose mine after Lost 33 was rescued. But why? While NASA publicly admitted to exploring the caves of the Atacama Desert to conduct Martian research, their subterranean forays might have a classified mission attached to them as well. A defense contractor for security, who wished to remain anonymous to retain his or her position, stated that NASA was looking for alien life on our own planet. The life may or may not be indigenous to Earth, but certainly lives here, deep in major cavern systems, said the contractor. For years NASA has had reports of reptoids or reptilian humanoids. Something happened and they decided to begin investigating. Why in the Atacama? A statement from an unknown source began to circulate. We found things. Remains of weird, shredded animals. Molted skin or something. And there was a brief firefight after one of our contractors went missing. The strange thing about his disappearance was all the blood and then reading that he had been killed in Afghanistan four months later. NASA officially ended its Atacama exploration in late 2010, perhaps with the events leading up to the Chilean mining disaster in mind. The Friends of Lost 33 tell a chilling tale that is far different from the official account provided by mainstream media outlets. According to people close to Lost 33, friends, family, and some who simply overheard the stories circulating around, the incident was no simple cave-in. This accounting has been pieced together from various conversations, emails, and written letters. Apparently, while searching for the source of a vein of gold, one of the mining detachments blasted through a wall of rock and discovered an enormous natural cavern on the other side whose walls shine with over a dozen thick veins of gold and other precious metals. The detachment members were quite happy and some of the men broke protocol by charging into the room to pickaxe gold nuggets. Word spread quickly, like bad air, someone said. Soon, dozens of miners were all over the cavern entrance, picking at the gold, making lots of noise, and ignoring their jobs. As the detachment leader tried to wrangle the men back into the mine, a small group of men explored farther into the cavern. Soon, things quieted down a bit, as miners focused on picking at the gold veins. Everyone was very happy, a miner's relative stated until they heard screams coming from across the cavern. Most of the miners were spooked and ran back into the mines except for the detachment leader who ordered men from his team to come with him to help the screaming men. By the time they got to the location of the screaming, it was too late. They found four or five men. It was hard to tell who was who and if all the parts were still there, in pools of splattered blood. It was a gory mess, said someone. One of the detachment crew had gotten blood all over himself, having slipped on a puddle of it. He lost his wits, trying to wipe the blood and gore from his face with a fresh handkerchief, later confiscated by NASA for DNA testing. As they tried to calm him down, the detachment heard hissing and crackling, 
like nails or claws making their way across the wet stone. The team called for help on their walkie-talkies and immediately left the cave, ran for their lives, in one email account. Having made their way through the blast hole, they realized that two of them were missing. More screams echoed from the cavern, these more blood-curdling than the first set. The detachment leader made a decision as he saw bloody, walking lizards coming for the blast hole. He ordered the hole blasted shut immediately and set three crews to work. In a frantic rush, they rigged explosives as the reptoids advanced, still chewing on the remains of the doomed miners who had ventured too far. One or two reptoids made it through the initial blast hole as crews rolled wire down the tunnel, so as not to be caught in the blast. Reptoids now in the mining tunnels began to kill anyone foolish enough to challenge them with handheld, powered mining equipment. Finally, the explosives were ready and the detachment leader ordered the blast. The explosion resulted in a cave-in of sorts, sealing the original blast hole under tons of rock. However, an untold number of the reptilian fiends were loose in their tunnels. Most, they hoped, had been killed in the blast, but no one was certain how many, if any, were roaming. More screaming told them that at least one was still lurking. At this point, the miners believed there were about 44 survivors in the area. After fighting with the reptoid in the dark for a few hours of hide-and-seek, and having many more deaths, the remaining 33 took shelter in the protected area built for cave-ins. The area also prevented the reptoid from entering. Here they remained in horror and shock for the next 17 days as more cave-ins happened around them unsure whether they were caused by the reptoids trying to dig in, out, or from blast damage. Many of Lost 33 have developed herpetophobia, fear of lizards, and reptiles, since their ordeal. I live near Lincoln, Illinois. Lincoln is located in central Illinois. It is 30 miles from the state capital, Springfield, and 35 miles each from Bloomington Normal, Peoria, and Decatur. It has a population of about 12,000. I am now 53 years old, but when I was a little boy, me and my family had an encounter with the Salt Creek Monster. At that time we lived out in the country less than one quarter of a mile from Salt Creek. This was two miles outside an extremely small little village, Kenny, Illinois. My mom witnessed it cross the road right before the bridge that crossed Salt Creek. My brothers had been down there night fishing and placing out night lines. My mom drove down to the bridge to get the boys and told them to get back up to the house. It was almost 10 p.m. And they weren't going to be allowed to stay out there all night. One of my brothers told my mom they had seen Bigfoot. Her, not believing them told them, well, you two boys get in the car, and come on home. They told her they had to gather their fishing poles and gear, and to please wait while they got it, and they would walk back up to the house. She agreed and waited while they did that, and they started back down the road. One of my brothers was on foot and one on his bike. As they took off, she drove on toward the bridge to turn around on a little gravel drive, right before the bridge. She had her driver's side window down. As she got to the drive, a horrible smell of garbage, mixed with rotten sewage water, practically smacked her in the face through the window. In the headlights, a six-foot-tall, man-shaped, thing crossed the headlights from one side of the road to the other. It was light gray and completely hair covered. It looked directly at the car as it passed by. She said she'll never forget those glowing yellow eyes. She said she had the hair on her arms, neck, 
and head all stood on end, and she's never felt that scared since. She turned into the drive, on the right side of the road, and slammed the gear shift into reverse, quickly doing a three-point turn to go back away from the bridge, and back up the road to the house. As she drove toward the house, this thing was running down the road. It was a full moon that night. The boys had been looking back, as they went to see where mom was, and they saw this huge, muscular, man-shaped thing running in their direction. They later said they looked back, because this thing must have weighed a lot because they felt it running on the paved country road before they saw it. My brother, who was on foot was scared so bad, he passed my other brother on his bicycle, running. Mom was freaked out because it looked like it was going after the boys. She swerved over at the creature, and it jumped off the right side of the road, down 15 feet into the deep ditch, and, let out a blood-curdling scream. Everyone got back up to the house, quickly got into the house, and locked all the doors and windows. They later said they could hear it walking around the house. It was thudding into the ground, and breathing loudly, as it went by windows. My sister and her best friend were sleeping out in a camper that fit into the bed of a pickup truck. They heard something walk up to the camper, and circle it five to six times. They could hear deep, heavy breathing, and the dog that was scared of nothing, under the truck whining. It slapped the side of the camper and rattled the doorknob. The girls stayed completely still and even held their breath, they were trying to be so quiet. After what seemed like forever, but in reality was probably 30 to 40 seconds, they finally heard, whatever it was, they never looked out any window to see, something thud off in the direction of Salt Creek. Sometime later, they heard something, off in the distance, in the same direction, they heard the thing, that only moments before had been circling their camper. That's when it let out an ungodly loud screeching howl that none of us will ever forget. I'm 18 and my friend, also 18, wanted me to take a few days off of school and go to California for Universal Studios. I live in Arizona, near Phoenix, and have never been to California. I had no problem with going to California so I got my parents permission to go. I spent a day at his house because we would have to leave the next day to make it and not waste a day just wandering around a hotel or a random place. So we take about a day to drive and we make it, so we spend about a day there. On the drive home on Interstate 10 near Loma Linda, California, it's night time and there is a long line of cars. It was because of people out of state visiting. I look out the window and see a figure that was over 6 feet tall, skinny, looks like a coyote but really sick looking, just crouching behind a bush or something but I do know it started poking its head out to look at me. It looked as if it had little to no ears on it which kind of caught me off guard and it had white eyes like undead zombie white eyes. Something happened that made it turn its head and I saw that it had sunken eyes. It had black or brown skin with hairs that looked fake and matted down fur on its face and head. Its neck looked like it had a gunshot hole hanging down from it, a rotting piece of flesh hanging down. The cheeks were torn and rotting as well with blood on its bottom and top jaws and only maybe 10 teeth. Some were slightly damaged but some were broken or almost entirely missing. Most were either slightly covered or somewhat covered in blood. This creature stood up slowly and looked at me. While doing so without moving an inch and walking in an almost straight path. I didn't mention what I saw to my friend. Since then, I've tried to sleep but just stayed up watching YouTube. I have not spoken to anyone else about this since it happened. 
Any idea of what I saw? Was it a zombie or an unknown humanoid? My good friend, John, who just turned 75 and lives in Oregon. John and I lived in the hills of La Habra Heights, California throughout the 50s and 60s. His family and mine lived across a valley in this rural Southern California community in the low hills of the San Gabriel Range. Our free time as kids was spent exploring these hills behind our homes and camping out in them from time to time before developers moved in, slowly but surely edging out what felt like our beautiful private wild little paradise. We would also, together or individually, take our .22S or a shotgun and go out to hunt rabbits or poke around. Early one morning before sunrise John, probably around 14 years old at the time, his dog Rocky, a sweet collie mix that was always by his side, and two other friends, Mike and Jay, along with his 22 rifle, headed out to the back hills to shoot rabbits or just have a good time on a free summer day. John's house was at the base of a steep loose rock hillside that pretty much went straight up to the ridge maybe 2 to 300 feet vertically. The ridge is accessible by hiking up a more gradual sloping ridge that runs top to bottom and is more easily negotiated if you want to get to the top. Once you get to the top you can walk along the spine for maybe a half mile or so and then off into the interior. Walking along the ridge you stay to the left side of the trail because the right side drops off straight down to the homes and trees below. As John and his friends were heading along this trail in the pre-dawn when the light was dark, but light enough to negotiate a well-traveled path, Rocky let out a low-throaty growl that alerted John to look up in time to see a bipedal rather tall human-like creature striding across his path from left to right meaning it walked straight in the direction of the extremely rugged cliff that would be impossible for a human to sustain. If you were to continue walking that way in just a few more steps, you would take a deadly tumble over the cliff. It made absolutely no sound, even though there was no shortage of underbrush and dead weeds where it was traversing. John described it as being the color of compressed moonlight, white and glowing, with an oval head but couldn't make out any facial features. Upon seeing this being they turned and hightailed it back the way they came until they stopped, composed themselves, and went back to see just what it was. Of course, when they got to the place they saw it, it was gone and the boys came home. John and Mike saw it but Jay didn't. Most likely because he was bringing up the rear on the trail. Early that morning I got a call from John excitedly quizzing me as to whether or not I was up on the hill that morning. It wasn't necessarily odd that he would ask me this because he, being about three years my junior, could easily have thought I was pranking him somehow, although I wouldn't think it would be too wise to hide in the bushes and pop out at someone in the dark carrying a loaded rifle. It wasn't me. He and Mike could barely contain themselves when I met with them to hear the story face to face. It was obvious they weren't pulling my leg. They had seen something they had never seen before and were totally freaked out. So for 60 plus years, we've told the tale of the white monster and pondered the mystery with no answers. I've never heard of a creature like this but since I've discovered this page with its diversity of sightings and experiences, I thought I would throw it out there. I was not at all surprised to learn of the existence of shape-shifting reptilian entities in human form, because I was married to a shapeshifter for five years. A few years after my divorce from the shapeshifter, I married a young lady from the Philippines and spent several years living with her on the island of Luzon, a small town about 70 miles north of Manila. 
When I was living there, I was repeatedly warned by people not to leave any house doors or windows open at night because of the danger from Aswang. At first, I dismissed the notion of Aswang as a silly superstition, and ignored the advice to keep the house shut up at night. I couldn't stand the heat. When I inquired as to exactly what an Aswang was, my wife told me that there are certain families in the Philippines, notably in the central Visayan Islands, who are not human beings but entities of an evil nature, having the power to literally shapeshift into something resembling a large bat or bird. At night, my wife explained, these people shapeshift and fly off in search of blood. When they find a victim, preferably a human victim, they sink a long sort of proboscis into the flesh and drain the blood. This, I was told, often results in the death of the victim from blood loss. When I was told all this, I laughed and refused to take it seriously, but I eventually discovered that there is much evidence that Aswang almost certainly does exist. The ability to shapeshift into an Aswang exists only within certain families in the Philippines and appears to be carried through the bloodline. Apparently, members of these notorious families never marry anyone who is not also a shapeshifter, thus the bloodlines are never mixed, hence never diluted, with normal human bloodlines. I learned from my wife's mother that she was once a victim of an Aswang attack but fortunately woke up during the assault and cut off the proboscis of the entity with a sharp knife that she habitually kept under her pillow. I discovered that many people in the Philippines sleep with a knife under their pillow in case of an Aswang attack. During my time in the Philippines, I found out that the phenomenon of the Aswang is taken very seriously by many people there and is almost universally accepted as a fact by the inhabitants of some of the central Philippine islands where most of the Aswang families reside. Not long before I left the Philippines for the last time in 1994 I read an interesting report in the Manila Bulletin, one of the country's national newspapers. It stated that several people in the Tondo district of Manila had recently become victims of Aswang attacks, and had died as a result. In response to this, the police had set up what was called an Aswang patrol. This was a special unit of armed police whose duty it was to patrol the streets of Tondo at night, with orders to shoot and kill on sight any Aswang that appeared on the scene. When I discussed this report with local people, they told me that Aswang patrols were frequently set up in areas where Aswang attacks occurred. All this confirmed to me the seriousness with which the authorities take the phenomenon. It was obvious that they didn't regard it as superstitious nonsense. I have also read a report by a Christian missionary who lived for more than 20 years in the Philippines, in which he writes of the demonic reality of the Aswang. He claims to have seen these entities on several occasions and says that he once actually witnessed the transformation of a certain person into the bat-like form of an Aswang. He states that he also saw several blood-drained victims of Aswang attacks, and knows how real is the existence of these terrible Aswang entities. His personal belief was that the members of certain families out there become possessed by evil spirits at night and are thus able to shapeshift. When in the Philippines I also heard a story about a man who lived in Manila, who supposedly could shapeshift into a large snake. At first, I was very doubtful about this, but I spoke to so many people who claimed to have witnessed this transformation, that I began to consider the story to be possibly true. It appears that not only are there shape-shifting reptiles on this earth, but there are also various other creatures, including the bat-like Aswang. I would imagine that all of these entities originate in the lower fourth dimension, but I have no idea how or why so many of them managed to get into the human incarnation.
In my contacts with various positive spirit entities some years ago, I was told repeatedly that not only are there negative and destructive non-human entities on this earth, but there are also several positive non-human entities in human form, who have incarnated here to try and counterbalance the negativity of the evil ones. So, it's not all doom and gloom.